it's important for us to remember that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And the difference to that is that when I understand, when I interpret or I observe the Bible and I think about the text or the chapter that I'm reading, for me to be able to understand who wrote it, why it was written, who it was written to, what general themes was trying to get across, I have to ask those questions because I'm reading a 2000 plus year old letter that was written in a different context to a different group of people in a different language. And so it's not the same as me grabbing my phone and reading a text from easy because I come to that knowing the context, knowing the environment, knowing the culture, knowing who wrote it and why it was written to me. But we don't often know those presuppositionally when we're reading our Bibles. Ran dumb. Trivia, notice where the emphasis is. Friends, I know a lot of you have a lot of questions about us. <laughs> <laughs> what an assumption. Why? <laughs> the question is why. Yeah, That's why like, in the world? Maybe just how you are anchoring the show. That's the only question. <laughs> miracles, yeah. Miracles of miracles. Grace. But yeah, r- random trivia, guys. That'd be something good that I just brilliantly thought up Did of. you? Yeah. Brilliantly. No one suggested it or anything. And Ray Comfort's a bit depressed because we were talking about doing random trivia and Oscar said something that stole Ray's thunder. I was just going to say, I'm related to somebody very important in the Bible, Adam. <laughs> and, and he killed it. He says, <laughs> so, <laughs> Still made me laugh. Yeah, it did? Yeah. So guys, let, let's just do a quick bit of that. Let's start with Oscario El Novario. My go-to for this is always that I have triplet sisters. Ah. Seriously? 13 years younger than me. I was an only child for 13 years, and then my mom got pregnant with and had triplets, three girls. Are they identical? Two are identical, and one is fraternal. Interesting how that happens. You know, how you could have a mix with yeah. one in there. So two eggs got fertile, and then one split. Man, I'd love, to, you'd love to be a triplet, or even a twin. I'd be so there's, there's enough of you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just, uh, I was reading an article about twin brothers who married twin sisters. Yes, I saw that. And then they had each a kid just like really close together, uh, just a couple months apart. And they call them, I think, something twins and also brothers and cousins. It's it's like because of the genetics and everything involved. Well, my my mother-in-law is a twin and my father-in-law is a twin and they're married. Oh, no way. So Kelly's, Kelly's, my wife's parents are both twins. I wonder how rare triplets are though. They they must be pretty rare. Yeah, I don't remember. Do dogs have twins? (laughs) <laughs> that's funny how animals like look at penguins that's just yeah, how, like how do they do you know you know what penguins do right they they leave while one stands and incubates the egg and the other one leaves for months comes back in the midst of what looks like trillions of penguins that look exactly the same dressed up in they tuxedos know. they find their mate by a call that blows my mind yeah anyway ray i don't have any trivia <laughs> oscar just took it away yeah huh? but mark does mark's related to um joseph smith oh yeah but i've never seen the uh, the paperwork on that so how did you come across fabricated this lie smed it up my it up. uncle was a bishop in uh, um, at a mormon ward in mesa Arizona. And so lots of Mormons. And so he said that he was... My aunt 
his wife. You know, Mark, I used to think, and I think I told you years ago, Mark, this is something you need to validate because how powerful would it be to tell a Mormon, hey, I'm a descendant of Joseph Smith. But then when I thought about the four billion wives he had, <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone in Utah is a descendant of Joseph Smith. That's true. So much We for had that. the picture upstairs in our hallway of the wives of Joseph Smith. Ah, Remember that he had about? That's right. They all looked like, one of them looked like Curly. They all looked like, <laughs> they all looked a bit like Curly. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. All right, you, easy. Random uh, trivia? Me? Um, aren't you, random aren't trivia you Arab? about me. You're an Arab. Yeah, I'm you? an Arab. You know, I think one interesting thing about me is I was born on the very famous holiday in Lebanon called the Day of the Cross. Prove it. Make me. <gasps> oh, I'm not supposed Does, to say that. Is, the, is it a Christian holiday? or? Uh, yeah, Catholic holiday. But, okay. but I mean, it's kind of cool that the whole nation's celebrating the cross, and that's the day yes. of the Lord. Yeah. So now you know, friends, of all of you, I had the really important one. Well. Yeah. All right. Well, question for you guys. Have you guys ever met my friend Herman? Nutix? No, Herman the German. Oh. Whose wife is a Persian. Herman who? <laughs> Herman who? Yeah, Herman. Guys, Herman, last name, Udix. Is that like a highfalutin word? Oh, yeah. Highfalutin. There's the word of the day. <laughs> Every episode, <laughs> I he finds it. something. He's got to work it in. You get paid to work in words. I do, actually. But I, here's my I thing. imagine I, that he, he goes to bed at night, just lays his head down on the pillow and goes, hi, phonetics. And he's yes. like so happy with himself. Oh, I love it. Yeah. A number of people read the dictionary. I think that's a great thing to do. If you've got a good memory to read the dictionary, so you've got a grip on words. I should have a word to say to describe what I'm trying to say, but I can't think of one. I used to have an app on my phone that was like, it was a dictionary app, and it would give you a word of the day oh. and the definition. It was kind of a fun way to Why'd expand you your vocabulary, because I never understood what it was trying to tell me. <laughs> Spurgeon had a, uh, quite the vocabulary, didn't he? Yeah, 23,000 words. Shakespeare wow. had 23,000 words. If you're average, you've got about 14. I love, st- I love studying vocabulary. That's something I- I've always done. And it's not so much to sound sophisticated, even though I do. <laughs> but it's just, it's really for comprehension. And there have been a number of times where I'll hear someone say something, and I go, oh, I know that okay, word. Okay, if you were drowning and you had to call it help, what extra word to impress people would you use? I probably would say, <laughs> I always go to Arabic for emergency situations. Oh, Bill Nye? <laughs> You're going to drown. The lion guy? Why does that remind me? Albert Einstein. What were his final words, Ray? <laughs> By the way, guys, I'm getting the what old the man context? wheeze in my laugh. I don't know if you guys hear it, but it, it's good. At least you're not snorting. <laughs> there it is. No, but seriously, what is that? It's Scott, like a throat whistle. Scotty's got one, and it's delightful. It really is. There was a dog on cartoon TV that had a, a oh, wheeze. Yeah. What was his name? But really? he was, Yeah, it was really. That's right. Uh, was that Snoopy? <laughs> no. You oh, do boy. that all the time. You know who he is? Right in if you yeah. know who You're also is. starting to slack your knee. <laughs> he was yeah. part of that group. <laughs> I I Ever since he became a grandpa. Mark's going to say something. He was the dog the, with the dashly leader, Josie and the Pussycats, the cartoon. He was the dog that was always up to... Not nothing. droopy. No. Whatever. You guys are making stuff up. No, we're not. All right, guys. We're talking about our friend, Herman, 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 Herman. You know, Todd Friel, our good friend, does actually have... <laughs> A series called Herman Who. You referenced that a minute it's ago, a book, Oscar. Isn't it? I know it's an audio set. I don't know that it's a book. There may be a booklet associated with it. But we are talking about hermeneutics today, friends. This may be a new word to a lot of you. It is somewhat. It took six minutes, 54 seconds to get to that word hermeneutics. Isn't that beautiful? Because of your guys' constant interruptions. Motley was the name of the dog. Motley Crew? No, Motley. 
Muttley. Yes. Saturday <laughs> and Muttley in the So hermeneutics. We better get. Yeah. Herman Udix. We're only seven minutes in, right? Why would we do that? Yeah. Herman Udix. Uh, again, like I said, this sounds like a highfalutin word. And Oscar being a highfalutin philosophical wordsmith linguophile type. Wow. Tell us what Sounds it Sounds like it should be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> I know, really. You're a linguophile. Well, we Please remember you in the whole bibliophile thing, right? <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that another uh, time. The most simple definition of the word would be the art of interpretation. The way I would explain it is, is like this. Well, one, the importance of hermeneutics, I would explain it like this. I've actually been to the British Library in Europe. The British Library in Europe has two of the oldest Greek Bibles that we have it also has 220-something manuscripts from the Greek New Testament. But when you go there, you'll see them, and they're covered behind this thick glass that's air-sealed. They have only a certain kind of light restriction that is allowed to even touch the glass. And then, like, I could only go and look at it. I'd have to be a, a trained, certified scholar and to set an appointment, and they would move it into a room, an airtight room, and you given certain kind of gloves and taught how to turn the pages. As Barry Cooper says, he points out, we are extremely careful when handling ancient copies of Scripture physically. How careful are we when handling Scriptures intellectually? Wow. That's a really good understanding oh, of hermeneutics. That's, really, that's so, a great, great analogy. Yeah. Hermeneutics is the art of interpretation, which is the practice, this is what I say, the practice of understanding God's word for yourself and communicating God's word to others in a manner that honors what God means to say. That's so good, Oscar. We use that word. It sounds sophisticated, so to speak. And it can be a bit daunting for people because it just sounds like, oh, I don't know this. I don't understand it. But we're basically talking about understanding God's word and interpreting it properly. And I think we have the biblical text for that, and that's 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Ray, with basically the major heartbeat of our ministry, and that is being a corrective to the modern gospel, the lack of the use of the law in evangelism, you've been huge on what does the word of God say about this and understanding it properly in that regard. Yeah, I was just thinking today how we look at the instructions on the back of a uh, door when we go into a hotel on how to get out if there's a fire. And we should approach the Word of God with that same sobriety. You know, uh, someone who goes into a hotel room, looks at the instructions at the back of the door and is cavalier and says, oh, yeah, I don't, there's no fire here, I'm fine, yeah. is a fool. If the fire breaks out in that hotel, there's going to be smoke in the hallway, you can't see a thing. And if you breathe one breath, and you're, you're dead. Yeah. So you've got to go to the floor, you've got to go low. And we need to approach the Word of God with the same sobriety because we're not just talking about this life, we're talking about the next. And I love when Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the good soil is is he who hears and understands with a good and honest heart. And that shouldn't stop when we come to Christ. We should approach the Scriptures with a good and honest heart, with a, a sense of humility and the same humility that we'd have and sense of our own frailty when we look at those instructions on the back of the door. This is God's Word. It's talking about things eternal, and we need to come to it with a humble heart, saying, how can I learn? And that's the basis for every educational person. Anyone who wants an education, you've got to realize, I know nothing. I need to learn. And that's how we should approach the Word of God. I think something that's important to point out, Ray, is that you're not 
just, I think a lot of people think that hermeneutics is like, oh, that's something that my pastor needs to do. But we all as Christians need to be men and women of the word. And so when you're saying we, 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 and when the Bible says we, it's talking to all Christians. We all need to have a good understanding of hermeneutics and and an ability to be able to interpret God's word correctly. Well, the word's kind of scary. I mean, the average mom at home, the average worker, blue collar worker, whatever, myself too, Hermeneutics, what? You know, do I have to go to Bible school? Can't I just read the Word of God? But it's just plain common sense when it comes down to it. Yeah. And whether knowingly or not, we use hermeneutics all the time when we read all kinds of different things. We may, again, not be concretely familiar with the distinctive principles within it, but we are. We're trying to put things in their context. What does this mean? What, you know, what's going on here? So there are a lot of different principles that you know, we want to touch on today, but there is that kind of sense. And I think it's, it's important for us to just focus in on this a little bit, because there is this sort of sense with a lot of Christians of, hey, man, I don't need any of that stuff. You know, just forget that theology and doctrine and hermeneutics or whatever. Forget you. I, I don't need that. It, yeah, you have no need for anyone to teach you, for the Holy Spirit shall teach you all things. That's what the scripture says, right? But context provides the flow of thought in which any given passage of scripture exists, and we see in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, to illustrate, it's like looking at Google Maps, and you zoom in on the ocean. And as you're looking at the ocean, you come to the conclusion that, well, the earth is only a body of water. No, we have to look at all of Scripture in totality in order to understand what Scripture is. So the best way to interpret Scripture is to use Scripture, right? Otherwise, we use a single verse. And whenever we look at a single verse, Greg Kokel, right, he says, never read a single verse by itself, right? Because any single verse all by itself will become a—this is the way— I think it was Coco who said this, never read a single verse by itself, because if you do, that text without context may become a proof text for a pretext. Wow, that's a good way to put it. So we must look at it conglomerately. We love to give things away. We love to give things away. And that's why we will do that every single day here on the Living Waters podcast. That's right, friends. We're giving away goodies for those of you who go to livingwaters.com forward slash podcast and fill out the form. We are giving 10, believe it or not, 10 different people each week goodies from Living Waters, $100 value for each box. You'll get tracts and books and a podcast mug and all kinds of good things. So make sure to participate at livingwaters.com forward slash podcast. And make sure to listen to the very end of the podcast where you will hear the announcement of the winners every week. Yeah. And Oscar, we've seen that, haven't we, with cults? I mean, so much of the doctrine that they espouse is really built on isolated texts that are not taken in the context of the whole of Scripture. Man, that's, that's a really good point. I think before we talk about what good hermeneutics is, it's valuable to talk about what bad hermeneutics is. And Mark is already talking about one of them, which is isolating individual Texas texts. And Texas? Then Texas. <laughs> isolating Texas. Uh, isolating individual texts. 
and misinterpreting what they mean. I think a prime pop cultural example of this, that even before cults is Philippians 4.13. Mm-hmm. I can do all things yeah. through Christ who strengthens me. Very good, me. Oscar. Talk Great about that, yeah. example of bad hermeneutics Steph is- Steph Curry has it on his shoe. On his shoe, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, any entrepreneur that claims to be a Christian has it written on their windows. We read that thinking to ourselves, oh man, like God is gonna empower me or gifting me to be able to accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. But when you simply read Philippians in its context, you don't even need to know that Paul was in prison when he wrote it, though it's important to know that he was. All you have to do is read the verses that come before it, and what you see is someone who is struggling, someone who's imprisoned, waiting for his death to come. And the sense you get from the letter to the Philippians is as they're reading this, they're probably reading this with tears in their eyes, that this man is facing death. And he's saying, I've been brought high, I've been brought low, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been abused, but I can do all these things. I can persevere through these things. And then that last part is something that's always forgotten, through Christ. It's the power that he finds, the hope that he finds in Christ. So there again, bad hermeneutics, this is not a self-help quote. Good hermeneutics is recognizing through all of the struggles of life, when your foundation is Christ, you can persevere for the hope that lies before you. And this is how you know if you're part of a church that does not have good hermeneutics is when you're part of a Bible study and the leader says, let's just kind of go around and tell me what this means to you. And then you tell me, and then you tell me, and then you, no, no, there's one meaning from the original author to its original audience on why it was written. Now, there are vast things we can take out from scriptures as we interpret scripture amongst other scripture. We can have different applications if we would, but we must always put it in its proper context from the original author. And I want to go back to what you said, Easy, because you brought up the occults. And I actually think that it's interesting that through history, there was almost like this era of explosion of bad hermeneutics. So right after the Great Awakening, which was a wonderful time in Christian history, especially for people in in the United States, what you had was a lot of people with a Bible separated from scholarly context and historical theology. They have no understanding of the original language. All they had was their Bibles. And what they were doing is, I'm using air quotes, using a simple reading of the text, simply trying to understand what does it say in the most simple of terms. And in that era between 1830 and the early 1900s, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, the kind of fundamentalism that brings about flat earth, all of that was birthed at a time where people had a Bible, but didn't have good teaching for that Bible. Right. Yeah. And, you know, right before we launch into the, the particulars here, we're standing on the shoulders of giants in that we sometimes, I think, forget the significance of the Reformation and how that has impacted all of our lives and the flow of the gospel across continents and into nations and into hearts of men and women. But that was a huge principle in the Reformation in that it was an issue of the interpretation of Scripture. I mean, Martin Luther made it really clear, here I stand, I can do no other unless I'm convinced by Scripture, right? And he spoke of conscience in that regard. But that's massive, isn't it? Like when we're dealing with false religions and truths, it comes back to proper interpretation of the word. Yeah, your word or thy word is a lamp to my feet, light to my path. And I'm in darkness without that word. And you can see it. When I talk to so many Roman Catholics who are sure they're going to heaven, they're hopeful they're going to heaven, they have no clue about scripture. And all I'm asking them to do is read scripture, see what it says. Speaking of that, 
one person I admire, or two people I admire, and there's quite a lot of them, are John Bunyan and Matthew Henry. Can we ever find fault in Matthew Henry's commentary? He so vastly yeah. wrote with a fear of God in his heart. All the, Everything he said, I mean, Spurgeon just loved Matthew Henry. Same with John Bunyan and how they had to be soaked in the Word of God yeah. to, to produce what we see in their writings. Yeah, that's so good. All right, so let's jump into it, guys. There are different principles highlighted by different Christian leaders throughout history in terms of hermeneutics. There are the the foundations, and there's the basics too as well. I, I think the inductive Bible study method is a good principle as well to look at, and that basically carries with it three main things, and that is observation. When you're looking at a passage, what does the passage say? You know, and that's where you gather facts. You kind of act like an investigative reporter. Like, let me just observe different truths and points of this text. That's the time that you also understand who wrote it, who they wrote it to, the context behind the letter in which it was written. So it's where it's good to read those little introductory portions that publishers put into scripture sometimes to see the context of what it was written. Yeah, about. right. It helps you kind of gather that information. You're, you're observing, you're, you're asking questions regarding that. And, and Oscar, why, why is that important, that observational part of investigation and looking? What are the facts related to this? That's a really good question. A big part of it is realizing, it's something that we've said in a previous podcast, which is it's important for us to remember that the Bible was not written to us but it was written for us. And the difference to that is that when I understand, when I interpret or I observe the Bible and I think about the text or the chapter that I'm reading, for me to be able to understand who wrote it, why it was written, who it was written to, what general themes was trying to get across, I have to ask those questions because I'm reading a 2000 plus year old letter that was written in a different context to a different group of people in a different language. And so it's not the same as me grabbing my phone and reading a text from easy because I come to that knowing the context, knowing the environment, knowing the culture, knowing who wrote it and why it was written to me. But we don't often know those presuppositionally when we're reading our Bibles. You know, that almost reminds me, Ray, of, of the book you wrote so long ago, The Mystery. And he doesn't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> the no, what? I, I do. That's being reprinted at the moment. Oh, I love Is that really? book, right? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. In fact, you sent me that book before I knew you. I had ordered some tracts and you included it in the box. Mark, you used to always talk about that, how you got free things from Ray and that impacted your life. Absolutely. That's what made me look into really trying to support Living Waters at that point. I was so taken back. Side note, I want to mess with Ray at one point and just like threw out a random title to a book to see if you like Ray do you remember writing Moby Dick because that was one of the most impactful <laughs> books I've ever read oh, I read that <laughs> I had a whale of a time imagine the royalties from that book but Ray I remember reading that book and thinking Ray did some research here because it revolves around World War II yeah and so yeah go ahead. it's so against my nature because I'm not like that but I threw myself into research for that book and then it went violin Copeland, and we know what she's like. She's an absolute perfectionist and brilliant. She did the evidence Bible, took my notes and produced a, such a beautiful thing. But yeah, with the mystery, it's all founded on historical fact. 
Yeah. And I, I remember as I was reading it, you were doing what Oscar talked about in a sense for the reader in that those that didn't live in World War II who may not understand the, the backdrop wouldn't really get it when you talked about the resistance as an example in there. But if you gave the backdrop in that, it brought the, the reader into that to understand that. And well, so, that was a form of hermeneuticism. <laughs> <laughs> we should keep expanding that word to make it longer and longer. Oscar, you're going to say? I was not. Oh, I was okay. just laughing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's so important. And so basically, as you're doing that in your observation, you're trying to get that context. So when you read something like that, you can understand it. And so, you know, like Mark, for example, someone might just read about the Last Supper, right? Quote, unquote. But that has context to it, right? We're dealing with the Passover. So maybe like in a passage like that, someone researching and understanding what the Passover meant, what, was it, what it was about, what they were doing, why there was the wine, the, you know, the bread, so on and so forth. That's key, right? Absolutely. To understand the Bible, we interpret it in light of a few things, right? So allow me to give me a few moments here. I would say, uh, to begin with, we start with a literal meaning, right? Just face value. What does a literal meaning look like. We start off there at a face value, and then we move into the historical setting. In other words, what did the original author intend to say to the original audience when he wrote the letter at that specific time? And this is what Oscar was alluding to there. And then we pause and we consider the culture, the customs, the traditions, right? When Jesus said that he is the bread of life, he would have said if he was in Mexico, I am maybe the carne asada of life or I am the beans of life, right? If he was in China, I'm the rice of life. Were you in tacos there? <laughs> this is, this is going to be a new version of the Bible. And you're making us hungry, right? Mark. <laughs> if it was uh, in Ray's house, I'm the cereal of life, right? Not anymore. Oh, now you're talking. Oh, yeah. but, so Jesus is relating. So it's, it's important to understand the culture and the customs and the tradition. And this is why it's always good when we read the Bible to have some good commentaries and lexicons and things of that sort alongside of us. What was understood at that specific time when that was being read and understood? Next, we take a look at the grammar, the immediate sentence and paragraph structure within which a word or a phrase is found. What is the literary understanding of that specific time, right? We must always go back to that specific time, that specific time. And if we have that in mind, we're going to be able to move forward just fine. And then finally, there's the synthesis. How does the passage compare with other parts of Scripture for a fuller meaning? The synthesis, the complete picture, the overarching picture. How does this relate to Romans, and how does that relate to Galatians? We're going to take a look at that. And all of these things now refer to context. This is now the proper context to things. So, therefore, to ignore that proper context is to set yourself up for failure. And we can't do that. Con with text. (laughs) Just to add one thing or to illuminate one thing is a big part of it too, is not just, especially when you're reading the New Testament, not to, not just to understand Romans in relation to Acts or Acts in relation to John, but to understand the New Testament, I would say it like this, it is incredibly difficult to understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament, because the New Testament borrows so much. Matter of fact, one of my favorite Bibles that I have is the CSB Bible, because they have, instead of red letter, they have a blue letter, which is every time the New Testament references an Old Testament passage. And basically the entire thing is blue letter. It really is amazing. You guys know that I like to listen to scripture a lot. I'm on my 30th time listening to the audio version of scripture. That's that's just just this morning. Yeah, no, no. During 
yeah, during the program. If you ever wonder why Easy quotes scripture so fast, it's because he listens to scripture at like 300 oh, times speed. That solved a mystery yeah. for me. I've done that so much. I start realizing how much of the New Testament contains the Old. I mean, so many quotes and references from the Old Testament. And you're right, people often ask me, what would you do different as a newer believer? And I would say, man, I would immerse myself in the Old Testament so that it would help me understand the, the context really of the New Testament. Yeah. So that's important. So, okay, observation. And then of course, from there you get interpretation. And these are when you're asking the questions, what's the author's intent in this passage? Bible.org does a good job on breaking this down for those of you that want to check it out. Easy, could I just butt in here a minute for the context of what we're talking about? CC. Are we able to talk just for a minute, because it might bring in truths that you guys know that could be very helpful, the story of the prodigal son. The context of that, the whole thought that the, a father would never do what that father would run after his son and fall upon him and kiss him culturally. Right. Do you have yeah. any thoughts to add to that or just as it a deal? Well, I, in fact, I was just recently citing that post that I just did on, on my social media outlets and talking about the heart of God reflected in that mm-hmm. parable, you know, that the concept of straying from God and God's willingness to receive his child back. I mean, the power of that is just mind-boggling. And because it does go contrary to what's thought of and expected, right? I mean, under the law, a son like that could perhaps be stoned to death. He was basically the, the rebellious drunkard that was incorrigible and would not repent. But under the new covenant, God is expressing his heart in his desire. I mean, you think of Peter on the day of Pentecost, you know, repent therefore and return that your sins might be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I think so often we focus in on the son that left, but really I think the whole story is the son who stayed, right? And we gloss over that. What would you why, agree with why that? Why is that, Mark? Yeah, I totally agree. So again, going back to context, we often read that parable alone, isolated as just a parable. And when you do that, the younger brother takes a particular meaning. But when you read it in its context, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and he's being questioned in the way that he's been reaching the unreachables in the society that he was at. And so he begins to tell these set of three parables. And when you take that into context, then you realize that Jesus's audience was almost to comfort or to reassure the lost sheep and to challenge the Pharisee, the religious leader. And so with that in mind, that's the reason why the prodigal son ends with the cliffhanger. The younger brother comes home. He's reconciled to the father. He's inside celebrating a banquet. And it ends with the older brother outside and the father going out again to meet the older brother where he's at and inviting him in. And that older brother is jealous of the younger brother. And so now all of a sudden you realize, ah, this parable was meant to be heard by that religious zealot, the Pharisee, who is, who is judging others and judging the way that Jesus is reaching out to the unreachables. And then you see him leave it as a cliffhanger. He's almost like looking at the Pharisee like, so are you going to come home? Are you going to repent of your sins? That's good. Yeah. And so, like I was saying, interpretation, what is the author's intent? What's the one principle or lesson the writer or God is trying to communicate? What was he saying to the people of his day? What would they have understood? Looking at other scriptures that will relate to the passage. 
the, all of these are key. And again, Bible.org outlines this, and it's really important to check. And then finally, again, under the inductive Bible study method, and then finally, it's application. And oftentimes, people start with application, right? It's just like, oh, this is, and then the whole what does it mean to me thing. And then we go into territories that, man, we're not living under the true power of God's word, because that power is never divorced from meaning, yeah. right? You have to have the, the fullness of the meaning. I can imagine somebody listening to this and going, man, like, isn't the Bible supposed to be easy to read? Can't I just pick it up and read it? And in some ways, yes, absolutely. God makes the important aspects of his truth available to even children. And so certainly we can pick up the Bible and just read it, and that is good. But also we are called to be faithful Bereans. And in order for us to truly understand the magnificence of the sovereignty of God, of the grace of God, of the love of God, we have to bridge the gap between the understanding of what the original authors meant to say in their context and what we understand in our context. There's a gap there. And the more we bridge that, the more the Bible becomes illuminated to us. I had a friend in Bible college. He went to, I can't remember where, but he was learning the original languages. And I was asking him to explain the difference to me. And he said, you know, it's like when you truly understand what God's word means, it's like having a black and white TV and then all of a sudden having a 4K full color television. The story's the same, but the picture is so much more rich, so much more vastly different. You see so much more details. Yeah, that's good. I've really learned a lot hermeneutologically. <laughs> when, it comes to, when it comes to Lazarus being raised from the dead, just the whole culture of the thing and the, the four days and, and all that, it just it makes for one of better word reading scripture more, more fun, more exciting. It's like you can hog down a, a meal or you can chew it over and pick at it and, and really enjoy it. So, yeah, it's really helped me read scripture. And, you know, you, in that regard, you think of the spiritual gift of the teacher in scripture, right? The pastor teacher. And a part of that is a special gifting, I think, to articulate these truths to God's people through the preached word, right? That has power and transforming impact. And so that's, that's hugely important. You know, R.C. Sproul outlined different principles of hermeneutics that are really important. And one of the first uh, he calls the analogy of faith, and that is that scripture is to interpret scripture. And I think the real point to that is that no part of scripture can be interpreted in such a way that it renders conflict with other parts of scripture. You know, we have to look at the whole. And sometimes some people will take certain isolated things and, and read them a certain way rather than saying, wait, what does the whole of scripture have to say? Judge not lest you be judged. Isn't that what the good book says? Explain that, Mark, actually, really. Well, we get that a lot when we're out on the street and we're trying to compel sinners to repent and come to Christ. We go through the law and people begin to say, well, judge not lest you be judged. Well, though scripture says something along that, those veins, it also says, when you judge, use righteous judgment. And then it also says, beware of the Pharisees. Well, how can I beware of the Pharisees or false prophets unless I'm able to mark those who are false prophets? So there is a litmus test that we can take in order to determine whether or not something is true or false. When people say, well, my God is a God of love, they quote 1 John 4, 6. Yeah, your God is a God of love. God is love, but he's also a God of justice. He's also a God of wrath. Usually what I think Ray tends to say when somebody says, my God's a God of love, and they leave it at that, 
say, well, you know, my God would never create hell is the attachment to that verse would be, well, your God is a figment of your imagination. He doesn't exist. He only exists in the place of imagery inside your mind. Your God cannot create hell because he does not exist. Right? So we need to grab a hold of Scripture and put it in its entire context, because when we read a single verse, remember, it becomes out of context because it's a, a pretext. And that verse, Judge not least to be judged, if you read it in context, is what we're talking about. It's to disciples don't, not to put down each other, and it goes, correlates with Romans 14. Why do you judge your brother and set him at naught? He's going to stand before God himself. So. You want to hear bad hermeneutics, listen to your average everyday atheist talk about the Bible. Ah. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, and then Sproul talks about another principle, and that's interpreting the Bible literally. And I want to read this. He says, The literal sense offers restraint from letting our imagination run away in fanciful interpretation and invites us to examine closely the literary form of Scripture. The term literal comes from the Latin literia, meaning letter. To interpret something literally is to pay attention to the litera or to the letters or words being used. To interpret the Bible literally is to interpret it as literature. This is, that is, the natural meaning of a passage is to be interpreted according to the normal rules of grammar, speech, syntax, and context. Again, you know, that harkens back to some of the other things that we're already saying. And that's so important. And connected to that is what I think we've highlighted already, perhaps, is the grammatical historical method. And he says here, the grammatical historical method focuses our attention on the original meaning of the text, lest we read into scripture our own ideas drawn from the present. Grammatical structure determines whether words are to be taken as questions, commands, or declarative. For example, when Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses, is he making a prediction of future performance or issuing a sovereign mandate? Uh, Though the English form is unclear, the Greek structure of the words makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is not indulging in future prediction, but issuing a command. I mean, that's a great example of that, how it works out. Yeah, we have to ask, what is the literary intent of the passage that we are reading? Because the Bible, it's made up of different types of literature. There is literal history, there is poetic language, there's apocalyptic language, there's wartime literature. So when someone asks me, like when someone's challenging me on, on the scriptures and they say, well, do you take God's word literally? The first question I ask is, what do you mean by literally? And the second follow-up to that is, yes, when it demands that I take it literally, but I don't take poetry literally. Poetry has a literal meaning and definition behind it, but we don't read poetry in the same way that we read history, right? Or even think about our language. If I was playing basketball last night and somebody made the joke like, oh, get out there and make a heat check. Should I take him (laughs) literally? How could I check the temperature of my body in, in that way? And yet... He literally wanted me to do a heat check. He wanted me to see if I can make an outrageous shot that I probably shouldn't take, right? So there's ways in which we interpret literary language. I am the door. Oh, you just dropped <laughs> off my hands. I read your notes. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and Oscar, this, this all plays into what's called genre, yes. right? Genre is huge, and there are different genres in the Bible, and you interpret based on the type. Is the gospel of genre? Of literature, you're doing the gospel of genre, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, you've got, in the Old Testament, for example, you've got narrative literature, right? All of the books that deal with narrative accounts. You've got the law. You've got wisdom literature. And, and then you've got, of course, poetry. In the New Testament, you have the gospels. You have parables. You have acts. You've got the epistles. 
You've got the apocalyptic, which is revelation. And all of these have a context that help you to understand things. Let me focus on one in particular, because this is where I think a lot of Christians get tripped up and get really disheartened. And that is when, when it comes to like the wisdom literature, yeah. right? When you're dealing, for example, with Proverbs. And I want to read this. This is from Bible.org. It's, it's really written well. It says, realize that much of the proverbial type of wisdom in the Old Testament is general truth based on observations, but not absolute truths or promises. Two good examples are seen in the following. A gentle response turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Another one is train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Christians should not take these types of proverbial statements as promises of what will always happen, but rather patterns that are generally true outcomes based on observation. A gentle answer will not always prevent an angry outburst, but it is much more likely to than a harsh one. Christian parents who have a child who has gone astray from the faith may have done their best to train the child the right way, but the child did not take it. So these are huge because there are a lot of people that say, well, man, I gave the general answer. The Bible says it should, what, didn't happen. No, the, these are what are called truisms. And so you understand that context. The same thing with bringing up a child in the way he should go. It's saying that this is the typical outcome, but it's not a promise yeah. because people get disillusioned. A modern day example would be an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That's no. not a guarantee or a promise. If you but, throw at him, it does. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point of that phrase that we understand is to eat healthy, eat your fruits and vegetables, right? Like we don't take it as literally true. We take it as a truism. Yeah, that's right. And so, man, these are such key things. I wish that new believers were discipled in these things at the outset, you know, because it would spare them so much heartache. A lot of Christians don't grasp these things until way down the line. And I say that with sympathy, right? There are things that, that I'm still grasping as a believer. So it's not something that anyone listening should feel condemned, but stirred, you know, to press on to greater depths because these are tools. I mean, maybe what I just shared about the wisdom genre has helped someone already think, oh, wow, I've been condemning myself for years because I thought I brought my children up in the way and they're not walking with the Lord. It must mean I didn't, but that's not necessarily the conclusion. I just thought of something strange. I thought we should do something on this. And then I thought we just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, in part, that's why you wrote Save Yourself Some Pain, right? We Those 10 life-saving, painstaking exercises that one can do when they first become a Christian on what do you do now? Where do you go from this point, when you first become a Christian, how do we respond? And I'd recommend that if you go to our website, livingwaters.com, and just type in, save yourself some pain. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Check out our good friend, Todd Friel's uh, Herman Who. Uh, he sums it up in a good way. Again, observe the text. What does the text say to the original audience? What's the principle for all time? How do I apply this text? Observation, interpretation, principalization, application. All of that. And then the other tools that, that we shared on the other principles of hermeneutics are really, really important. And I'm telling you, friends, as you do this, your soul will feel so lifted because you're gaining more understanding of what God's Word has to say. And on that note, friends, the Evidence Bible, it is a tool that will help you to go deeper. And there are so many principles in there that will strengthen your faith, encourage you, inspire you, and maybe even entertain you here and there, right? <laughs> yeah, there are optical illusions and trivia and stuff in there. A little, bit yeah. of, a little bit of candy. It really is packed. And so many have gone out around the world, definitely over 100,000, maybe way more than that. I don't know. But it's it just a one lady who's trying right. to reach her husband. <laughs> one, yeah. one illiterate lady. I love that we're doing this episode because I really want to encourage 
biblical literacy across the board. Again, this is not just for pastors. And Herman Hu, I haven't read it though. I have a friend who has and he he loved it. I think he said it was a book. Maybe he said he listened to the series. He went through it. Another one for women specifically is Women of the Word. It's a fantastic book. I suggest reading that one because women are encouraged to be faithful Bereans as well. Although, you know, the men is called to lead in the home, like women should be little sheologians, if you will. And then one last thing that I want to mention, which is Luke 24, 27. It's after the resurrection. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the early texts in the Old Testament. And the Bible says that he interpreted to them the things concerning himself. And the point that I want to make here is that Jesus is our ultimate hermeneutic. So this is Rod Hormaeus you're talking about. I believe it was, yeah. yeah. He is the ultimate ultimate hermeneutic. As we read and understand the New Testament, it is summed up in who Jesus was and is. And as we read and understand the New Testament, it is summed up in who Jesus is. Amen. And you know, on that point of Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says that they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures. I love it. And friends, that's what we hope God's word does for you. Remember please to email us at podcast at livingwaters.com with your thoughts or input or show ideas. And also make sure to visit livingwaters.com. Don't forget to rate the program and to give us your comments. Thank you for joining us on the Living Waters, P-O-C-D-C-A-S-T. Pause? Podcast. You, Mark, P-O-C-T. when are you going to pay him to sort of? That one bombed. When are you going to pay him to sort of not do this? He doesn't realize that we're cutting all this out. No, I, no, I think we should keep it in. Um, Thanks for joining us on the Living Waters. P O D C A S T. Oh well. Bye, friends. <laughs> Maybe forever. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>